This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the second open enrollment period has officially ended for Americans to sign up for health coverage under the Affordable Care Act. Analysts predict the numbers will have exceeded the administration's expectations. And the recent estimates suggest the number was higher. A number of Americans won't be doing their taxes until they get closer to the April 15th deadline and won't discover they will pay a penalty for a lack of coverage until it's too late. This could be the teachable moment for those Americans who just weren't aware of their tax liability or the fact that they would qualify for subsidies if they bought insurance through the exchange. (laughs) It does offer an interesting solution for folks who didn't sign up for health coverage by the end of the open enrollment. Many Americans were getting different messages about the health care law depending on where you live. No matter where you live in this country, Mark, you are likely to have heard of the Mayo Clinic, one of the most venerable and respected health institutions in this country. And our guest today is the dean of the Mayo Medical School, which is building a new medical school that's focused on 21st century care. Dr. Shereen Gabriel will talk about the need for creating better medical training models that reflect the dramatic changes that are underway in the healthcare system. And Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, will be checking in. She's always seeking to uncover misstatements made about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at CHC Radio or find us on Facebook or on Twitter. We love hearing from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Shereen Gabriel in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these health care headlines. The Obama administration is allowing a special health law enrollment period from March 15th to April 30th for consumers who realize while filling out their taxes, they owe a fee for not signing up for coverage last year. The special enrollment period applies to people in 37 states covered by the federal marketplace, though some state-run exchanges are also expected to follow suit. They'll still have to pay the fine, which for last year was $95 or 1% of their income, whichever is greater. The administration also said it sent out the wrong information to 800,000 people to help them calculate whether they received too much of a subsidy Those affected are being notified by email or telephone and are being asked to wait to file their taxes until after a new 1095A form is sent in early March. Meanwhile, in a first since officials began gathering such data, insurers paid less to critical care hospitals in January than the same month last year. Experts believe it's the public pressure and private pressure to drive down costs as one of the reasons. Insurers are attempting to save health care costs by lowering the hospital bill, so they are more aggressively bargaining with hospitals and investing in programs that do lower hospital utilization rates. And a new weapon in the war on HIV-AIDS, a new compound, has proven so successful in blocking the virus, scientists are amping up their efforts. This new approach creates a Y-shaped protein with both a head and tail, inhibiting the virus's pathway for infection on two fronts. Researchers are calling this the broadest and most potent entry inhibitor so far, having thoroughly blocked infection in monkeys for up to a year. I'm Ariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines.
We're speaking today with Dr. Shereen Gabriel, Dean of the Mayo Medical School at the esteemed Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, as well as the Mayo Medical School plan to open in Arizona. Dr. Gabriel is an intern specializing in epidemiology and rheumatology. She's been a co-director of education for the Mayo Medical Center for Translational Science Activities since 2006. She served as uh, president of the American College of Rheumatology from 2007 to 2009. She earned her MD at the University of Saskatchewan College of Medicine and completed her residency at Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. She's the recipient of the Mayo Distinguished Educator Award. Dr. Gabriel, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, well, the Mayo Clinic is something that I think everyone uh, in the country knows, uh, but perhaps they don't fully understand the uh, Mayo model of care. And maybe you could illuminate our listeners, if you will, about that sort of esteemed model of care. The model of care uh, centers around three basic tenets. Uh, one is patient-centered culture. It's, uh, it's in the air we breathe here, I think, and that pervades everything we do here. And So I think I would say first and foremost is, is that patient-centered culture. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, a culture of teamwork. This is, this is not a place to build an empire because we all work in teams, and that, again, is across the entire institution. And then thirdly, I'd, I'd say uh, it's the people who are here. We have managed to and we continue to uh, recruit individuals who are not only excellent at what they do, but whose, um, whose own personal values and professional style uh, align with our culture here. And so at the end of the day, it really is about the people who work here, really at all levels. Well, Dr. Gabriel, recognition of patient-centered medical homes certainly brought a new focus on that in terms of very specific things that we are asked to do in healthcare. Um, and I'd, I'd be curious of the PCMH standards as they've been developed for providers all over the country. Do they get at this heart of what it means to have patient-centered care above and beyond any individual standards? So any sort of standards really don't get it an entire concept. But what they can do is bring attention to it and help us begin to think about a sort of complicated construct like patient-centeredness and begin to think about how we would measure it, how we would, uh, and, you know, if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. Mm-hmm. How, how can we begin to get our arms around that complicated construct? So I think there's a real need for standards. They begin to put us on a path helping to define that construct more clearly for everybody in order that we can measure it, in order that we can improve it, and uh, be able to demonstrate our patient-centeredness uh, uh, to societies. You're currently, as I think many people in the country are, in this process of reimagining and reinventing medical training uh, to take into account the sort of rapid change landscape that we're seeing in healthcare. Uh, can you describe for our listeners the innovative approach uh, that you bring to medical training, helping you achieve your goals? Well, uh, at Mayo Medical School, our goal is to train the next generation of physician leaders in patient-centered, team-based, science-driven, high-value healthcare. In order to make an impact, it's important for us to aim to train the leaders, uh, the physician leaders of tomorrow. And the first important tenet of the way we train them is patient-centered. And then also the foundations of science will always be first and foremost, and team-based 
And, you know, everybody is trying to move towards a high-value medical model where we're providing just the absolute best quality for a price that American society can manage. And so that's what we're trying to do at Mayo. Just kind of simply stated, we like to say that we are transforming how, what, and where we teach at Mayo Medical School. So uh, how having a lecturer at the front of a lecture hall, students sitting in in seats for hours on end, we are moving towards a blended learning platform where we're bringing education technology to bear in ways that haven't happened. It it has happened in uh, in higher education elsewhere, but not so much in medical education. And so we're in collaboration with ASU who are helping us with the online delivery piece. We're changing what we teach, bringing in as required curriculum for the first time disciplines that we call the science of healthcare delivery. And so we are training our students, not only giving them the tools and knowledge to help heal the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Things that basically none of us learned in medical school, but we believe the next generation of physician leaders is going to need to know. We now envision Mayo Medical School as a national medical school. And so we're expanding uh, our footprint to build a four-year branch school at our Mayo, Arizona campus and also working with our community partners at all of our sites. We believe it's important to expose the next generation of physician leaders to as many different practice opportunities and medical challenges as possible. And we want to leverage the very large national footprint of Mayo Clinic to provide those kinds of educational experiences. Maybe I could go in a little bit different direction than I was planning to and talk about the who you are teaching it to. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about who are you reaching out to and trying to engage as medical students, and is that one of your focus areas as we think about diversity, as we think about workforce shortages, as we think about primary care? Yeah, and so uh, it's challenging. You know, recruiting uh, uh, medical students is, is is, is a challenging task. Uh, we are, because we're a small school, we only admit an, in our current school in Rochester, Minnesota, 50 students per year. And when we open the four-year branch in Arizona, it'll be about the same size. And we believe that size is important, that small size is important. And we've actually learned that as, as we learn many things from our own students. And so when we uh, we engage our students in as much of our strategic planning and, st- and thinking about the future of the medical school as possible. And when we talked to them about expanding the school, they helped us understand uh, in a much more personal way how valuable it was to them to have that small community and uh, the ties that they were able to build across and among one another. Um, and so that's why we've decided, or at least one of the reasons we decided we're going to keep the school the same size in, in Arizona, you know, double the size, but by replicating that kind of small, intimate environment. So with respect to how, what kinds of students we recruit, we really go back to our vision. And we try to align our recruitment strategies and our admissions policies to that vision. So we look for leadership experience. Patient-centered care, is there anything about their experience that really resonates with um, science-driven? Of course, we look for that scientific foundation. And then the high-value healthcare piece, we are looking for students to applicants who think about healthcare 
as the future of the healthcare system and are engaged at some level with this national debate. Again, you know, to maintain our alignment with where we want to go as a school, uh, when we think about our admission strategy, we, we try to tie it to that vision. But in order to be a national school, just to get back to that, and in order to serve all of those goals, diversity is, it has to be a part of that and has to be central to that. Because, you know, I think there's good literature now is the more complex the task that you're trying to solve, the more valuable having a diverse team to solve it becomes. Mm -hmm. And so we look at diversity in, you know, in all of its definitions. Obviously, uh, diversity in terms of backgrounds, diversity in terms of race and gender and uh, sexual orientation and religion and diversity of thought. So we, we try to look at that, that construct as broadly as possible and try to bring to bear as many, uh, as many diverse applicants as possible who, again, who align with our, our vision and our culture at Mayo. We're speaking today with Dr. Shereen Gabriel, Dean of the Mayo Medical School at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, as well as the Mayo Medical School plan to open in Arizona in 2007. You know, Dr. Gabriel, I want to uh, pull the thread a little on this uh, new value you've introduced here, the sort of science-driven care. And, you know, we're certainly uh, all familiar with that uh, the healthcare is moving towards this patient-centered care and patient-centered medical homes uh, will be the norm. But we're also entering an era in medicine where personalized medicine and genomics are becoming game changers, sort of science-driven. How, how do you see these advances being brought into the broader scope of the work at Mayo Clinic and as well as the clinics around the world? And uh, how will it impact uh, the art of the uh, medical education moving forward? Well, it basically is an extension of what we and, and, frankly, many other medical institutions have already been doing. And science is pushing us to consider genomics in ways that we haven't in the past. We are recognizing, for example, that the primary determinants of health, well, first of all, are, are the social determinants of health and, and behaviors, which is also becoming a very important part of medical education, a more important part of medical education, certainly, than what I trained, and genomics. So those two things together are the primary determinants of health. And so to the extent that we can focus our medical education and our models of care towards those, those two areas, which, you know, brings us to prevention and uh, uh, some of the work that we're doing in genomics, uh, the more we're going to be able to impact, impact health. And again, if the primary tenant is the needs of the patient come first, uh, the needs of the person who comes to Mayo Clinic or comes to your medical institution comes first, then we have to pay attention to genomics. We have to pay attention to the social determinants of health. Well, Dr. Gabriel, it's it's hard to imagine uh, where you find time in addition to your duties as dean of the Mayo Medical School to serve as the chair of the methodology committee at PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, uh, one of the many innovation initiatives brought through us through the Affordable Care Act. Uh, but you do, and I uh, suspect that your, uh, your Mayo experience and background informs some of that work. Certainly, PCORI has made many grants uh, for research, and it really kind of brings together the two things, the science and the patient-centeredness. Uh, maybe you could share with our listeners a little bit about the work that PCORI is doing, and have there been any what you would consider promising breakthroughs to date? 
Yeah, well, you know, first of all, when the United States GAO calls you and, and says we'd like you to <laughs> you serve don't say in I'm capacity, too busy. <laughs> you kind of you, yeah, you don't really say well I'm kind of busy this week. But uh, so I was I was truly honored uh, to be appointed to Picori, and it was a very very exciting experience. I I have to say, and it really is groundbreaking uh, what they're trying to do. And and it was natural for me <laughs> because Picori is all about patient-centeredness, the first two letters right. of Picori, but they're taking it that patient-centered concept to a much higher level in the context of outcomes research. And so imagine a research study where patients are involved every step of the way. So they help define the research question to be studied in the first place. They help with the design of the study, understanding what are the best measurements from a patient perspective. They help explain the outcome. They help disseminate the results. I mean, that's really the vision of, of PCORI, and it was groundbreaking at the time, and it was just very exciting uh, to be a part of that. And as you say, PCORI is uh, shaping outcomes research and hopefully uh, informing medicine for the future. Now, avoiding the question, have there been any promising breakthroughs, because the grants have only been, gone out in the last couple of years, and I think the answer to that is not yet, but stay tuned. <laughs> I think there's some very exciting work that's been funded by PCORI, and just early results are coming out now, but they should be coming out in the next year or two. Dr. Gabriel, we uh, remind our providers at, at our primary care sites that uh, the challenges are not necessarily the, the 100 minutes a year that a patient spends with us, but rather the other 526,000 mm-hmm. minutes a year that they spend in outside of the, of the health care facilities. So we have this whole issue about the social determinants of health, poverty and housing, food insecurity, unemployment. How much focus are you placing at Mayo on the underlying causes and the predeterminants of poor health? And how is prevention playing a role in the evolving model of care and medical education as well? Well, a lot of that comes under that new required curriculum that we have that we're calling the science of healthcare delivery. And and, and by the way, that term's uh, beginning to gain ground, so other institutions are are thinking about that as well. And so we do talk about the social determinants of health, and it's, it's very important for our students. Again, if uh, the goal is to train the next generation of leaders to understand what the determinants of health are and the role that healthcare has to play. And healthcare is actually less of a health determinant than genetics and social determinants of health put together. So to the extent that our students understand that, that our providers understand that, and hopefully we'll be able to inspire some of our students to actually play a bigger role there, whether it's as a a healthcare provider or on the health policy side of things. It's just it's just important to highlight that. And, of course, prevention has always been a part of our uh, education, and it continues to be a part of our education process. But if our job as healthcare providers is to improve society's health, mm-hmm. uh, to be able to understand at a deeper level what are the determinants of health for our society and our communities. And, and, and that's what we're focusing on in this new curriculum. We've been speaking today with Dr. Shireen Gabriel, Dean of the Mayo Medical School at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. To learn more about her work, please go to at Mayo Clinic on Twitter. Dr. Gabriel, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Is there a connection between illegal immigration and the recent measles outbreak? That's what Representative Mo Brooks suggested. But while it is difficult to pinpoint precise origins of disease outbreaks, there is no evidence supporting the link between the recent outbreaks and illegal immigration. In a radio interview, Brooks, a Republican from Alabama, said that the immunization practices in the home countries of immigrants who are living in the U.S. illegally could be responsible for outbreaks like the recent spread of measles. That outbreak includes most of the 102 cases in 14 states in the month of January. It is likely that the outbreak originated from outside the U.S., but the director of the CDC's National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases has said illegal immigration isn't the likely culprit. Americans returning from travel abroad or foreign visitors could have brought measles to Disneyland parks in California. The countries under investigation as a possible source include Indonesia, India, and the United Arab Emirates. For part of 2014, the CDC was able to pinpoint the origin for 280 cases of measles. It counted 45 direct importations of the disease, which included 40 U.S. residents returning home and five foreign visitors. Only three of the transfers came from the Americas. As for countries' vaccination rates, back in the 1980s, Central American countries had low rates of measles vaccinations, but that's no longer the case. Since 2000, those countries' rates for one-year-olds have been largely on par with or have exceeded that of the United States. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Vaccinations are considered one of the great public health achievements of the 20th century, reducing fatalities from most common and fatal diseases by up to 99%. But in the 21st century, some of those numbers just aren't stacking up. As recently as 2009, only 45% of the nation's preschool-aged children had received all of their recommended vaccinations and boosters. And researchers at the Children's Outcome Research Program at Children's Hospital in Colorado decided to take an in-depth look at the problem. Primary care practitioners are so overstretched. There are so many competing demands. There are so many financial problems they're having that it's rather impractical. And they also require a a level of technical expertise that sometimes they don't have. Dr. Allison Kemp heads up the Children's Outcome Research Program, and she conducted a study on what would help to generate better compliance with the required vaccinations, which is a goal of the government's Healthy People 2020 initiative. And she found that when parents received timely reminders from their state and local health departments, parents were much more likely to get the vaccinations and boosters for their children that they needed more than if they simply relied on a reminder from their primary care provider. What our study did was to centralize those efforts. So it didn't take away 
from the primary care providers, but it helped them to do the reminder recall for their practices centrally using a state registry. So this was much more efficient and much more cost efficient. Dr. Kemp says her research shows that when a reminder message can be generated for an entire population across communities, it takes the onus and the burden off of the primary care and pediatric practices. Her study showed that those effects were pretty significant. In a fairly short six-month period in the counties where this was done centrally, about 19% of children who were not up-to-date became up-to-date versus about 13% in the practice-based recall state, which on a population level within six months is really very powerful. Dr. Kemp's work suggests that a regional or state immunization information system, like the one in her home state of Colorado, could provide the most efficient means of outreach. And the study also suggests that there's a cost savings with a centralized state or county-run database and reminder system, both in terms of the vaccines themselves and in reduced medical costs as fewer children fall ill. Particularly pertussis, measles, and even H influenza, Haemophilus influenza. And, you know, you have one case of influenza, Haemophilus meningitis can cost tens of thousands of dollars. The costs are, uh, of not preventing these illnesses are very high. A state health department-driven vaccination program that assists private practices in vaccine compliance for their patient population, improving vaccination rates of young and vulnerable children while improving the public health? Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.